You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed. In the name of Allah, the gracious of us, peace be upon you, good morning, and welcome to the breakfast show of the Voice of Islam, with Imam Toki Zanvir and myself, Ali Ahmed. The time is 7.03, and the date is the 16th of September, 2022. Uh, the breakfast show is an interactive broadcast. It means that all our listeners have the opportunity to join in any of the discussions taking place during the course of the program. All you need to do is to pick up the phone and dial 0208-687-7878 and it will be put through uh, to share your thoughts uh, with the rest of the listeners. Uh, alternatively, if you, can, if you want to use the more modern methods of communicating the Twitter you can tweet us or at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, a packed program once again this morning with a variety of different subjects uh, that are going to be explored. In a few minutes' time, we'll be uh, giving a rundown of the weather before going on to examine some of the news stories that are doing the rounds these days. I won't be spending too many uh, minutes on on each, trying to rattle through as many as possible. I suppose we'll be concentrating principally on the main story of uh, the week, that of the demise of our uh, queen and uh, the events that have since followed and are yet to follow uh, with the funeral taking place on Sunday. Uh, now, those familiar uh, with this broadcast will know that we have uh, normally two main topics that we examine in uh, some detail. Uh, the first is an interesting finding. Uh, I think it's uh, been reported by the Church of England. Uh, uh, well, and that is that the younger generation is uh, turning to prayer. Uh, something, as I said, we picked up from one of the websites. Uh, and we'll be discussing the subject with Ruth Ormstone. And Ruth is from the Mindful Nation UK. Uh, and we also hope to be joined by Ollie. Uh, Ollie is from the Sharpham uh, Trust uh, charity. And this, on this part of the program, uh, we will also be talking to Richard Burnett. Uh, Richard Burnett uh, is uh, of the MISP Mindfulness in Schools. And finally, for this topic, we hope to be speaking to Professor Rebecca Crane. Uh, Rebecca Crane uh, teaches at the Bangor University, and uh, we will be asking her to lend her expertise in understanding this phenomena better. Uh, so if you're interested in this topic, younger generation turning to prayer, then do make sure you're tuned in uh, during the 7.30 to 8.15. Uh, moving on to the second main topic, is related to the aftermath of uh, COVID and uh, wondering whether it has inf influenced our position about religion. COVID changing the views around religion is the title of this uh, topic. Uh, and uh, we'll be discussing this uh, from uh, quarter past eight onwards. And to further our understanding of this particular topic, we expect to be speaking to senior lecturer at the Manchester School of Theatre uh, at the University of Manchester, uh, Dr. Joshua Edelman. So he'll be lending his expertise uh, to help us understand, is COVID responsible in any way for changing the views around religion? Uh, so it's clearly lots to uh, talk about, lots to cover. And also, uh, as always, we shall have a review of the Islamic angle to all be discussed from our boss and leading uh, 
presenter topic, Louisa. Um, we will be beginning uh, with the weather very, very shortly. And um, over to you, sir. Welcome for the great introduction as always. Um, and you know, we do hope that you are tuning in towards the Islam radio station. Um, and uh, you know, we have a very packed show. Um, and we do hope that uh, you'll be enjoying these two particular subjects. But as Brother Walid mentioned, that <coughs> we'll start this particular segment off with the weather. So this is from BBC Weather, the forecast for today is that today will be a mostly dry start with areas of cloud breaking up to give sunny spells and later scatter showers will develop for a time but the sunny spells will persist in between cool and breezy. And the forecast for tonight, uh, the forecast is that tonight looks to be dry. <clears throat> and there will be extensively clear skies for most, just one or two light patches of cloud drifting in, uh, winds easing a little, and it becomes chilly in places. So that is the <clears throat> weather forecast uh, for today. Brother um, I mean, it's, it's been a while since, you know, you and me have uh, come together and yeah. we've presented together. Uh, it's just I think so so many <laughs> either I'm yes. presenting on Thursday well, or I was uh, wondering I thought it was a conspiracy to part <laughs> maybe I was having a bad influence on you and uh, uh, the uh, management wanted to protect you <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad uh, <laughs> we re- re- reunited yeah. it's uh, yeah a bit of normality now absolutely absolutely um, but the weather has changed hasn't it Weather has changed. Uh, no longer requiring yeah, t-shirts. Yeah. Mm. In fact, <clears throat> um, you know, as, as this is the news hour, we tend to go through some of the <clears throat> news with regards to the Amdiya Muslim community. And over here in the UK, um, just last week, we had the annual convention of the Amdiya Muslim Youth Association. And uh, just from today, actually, uh, all the way to Sunday, it will be the it will be another convention for the um MDA Muslim Elders Association UK so, and the ladies and and and, the, and for the mm. ladies so uh, that's something to look forward to will you be going as well yourself yes uh, you hope yes I, should, I will be going yes I mean, it's, it's maybe not all three days, but I shall certainly be uh, participating. It's, I mean, it's the same site in uh, Kingsley. Uh, this is near. Um, <clears throat> this is our near our um, annual convention site, the Jalsa Salana site. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ground itself, you know, you have to be a little um, careful that if it rains too much, it can also get a little muddy. So uh, for those who are who will be attending. Uh, you know, just make sure that you do have your rain jackets with you, um, and if if you do, maybe at Wellingtons, take those with you as well, as uh, it can get slightly muddy. Okay, is there any tracking? A little tracking? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of tracking. Um, mm, that's true. <clears throat> uh, and, I mean, and I mean the the soil itself is fairly better. Um, it's it, it's fairly better than our our site at the Jalsa Slana. Uh, but uh, if it does rain, then you know, just in case, mm. um, have maybe um, shoes which are at least waterproof, um, as you know, your socks can tend to get wet. <coughs> right. Um, well, uh, the main story, otherwise, uh, during the week was um, the demise of uh, the Queen. Uh, the nation was deeply saddened to learn 
of the passing away of Queen Elizabeth II uh, on Thursday last week. And it set off a series of events that uh, had long been planned uh, for such an eventuality. Uh, Prince Charles assumed the role of sovereign immediately, and his, his elevation to the throne was confirmed by the Accession Council that uh, met on Sunday uh, uh, this week on at St. James's Palace uh, before that uh, proclamation was read out at the Royal Exchange and then rolled out uh, across the country. Uh, the, queue, the new king had a grueling schedule to follow the next day, uh, first receiving and responding to uh, condolences offered by both Houses of Parliament at London's Westminster Hall on Monday and then flying to Edinburgh, uh, the palace of Holyrood House, uh, to receive words of sympathy expressed by the Scottish Parliament, uh, to which he gave his response. Uh, it was then uh, observed to walk behind the Queen's, Queen's coffin uh, with his siblings uh, from the palace uh, of Holyrood House to St. Giles's. And before the day was uh, over, uh, he held a vigil at the Queen's coffin with other members of the royal family. And the next day uh, was when he had to fly off to Ulster, received the message of condolence from the Speaker of the Northern Irish Assembly and uh, made his reply there and a short reception at Hillsborough was followed uh, uh, after which he had to go to St. Anne's Cathedral for service and prayer reflection. Uh, and after that he had to meet leaders of all major faiths in Northern Ireland and then return to London. So no wonder uh, with such a punishing uh, itinerary he was caught in an irate mood when his pen started uh, to leak on signing uh, um, certain papers uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, he is 73 after all, and I suppose we have to show us a degree of understanding. His uh, travelling continues, and today he's expected to go to Cardiff to receive the condolences from the Welsh and offer his reply there. And the weight on his shoulders is clearly one that is unenviable, and there is much goodwill for him among his subjects rooting for him. Uh, to do well in his uh, new role as uh, as king. And just to mention that um, the Amdi Muslim community also conducted uh, certain events uh, recently uh, in remembrance uh, of the queen and in support of our, our new monarch. Um, this was uh, held, uh, events were held in uh, various uh, places in the UK on Wednesday and then I know that there are certain wells, uh, events that are going to be held later on on uh, uh, later on uh, today as well in Huddersfield. Um, so the events that took place on um, um, on Wednesday were in, in Southall, in Crawley, in Leamington Spa and here at uh, the Battle of the Mosque. Uh, here at the Battle of Two Mosque, uh, we were actually spoken uh, uh, spoken to, or should I say, we actually listened uh, to various uh, dignitaries, politicians, and church and religious leaders sharing their thoughts uh, about uh, the Queen. Uh, in particular, we were uh, we heard the uh, the thoughts of. Um, Local MPs, Siobhan McDonough, the MP, the local MP that uh, covers the Battle of Two Ways, uh, was was present. Tom Brake was present. He also spoke. 
uh, and so did Ed, D- Ed Davey, the, the leader of the uh, Liberal Democrats. Uh, in addition to that, we had uh, church leaders and religious and Hindu leaders who also spoke at the event, and uh, this particular event that took place on Wednesday was presided by the uh, national president of the Amdi Muslim community who uh, gave his closing remarks and brought the uh, the um, event to a, uh, an end with a silent prayer. And this kind of event, as I said, was replicated in other parts of the con- uh, country and still is. And what was mentioned by uh, the national president is that these kind of events uh, where we um, mark... Uh, our support uh, for the monarchy is drawn from uh, the teaching of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and the teachings in Islam about uh, being loyal to one's country, being loyal to one's nation, and therefore allegiance and an affinity to the monarch of a nation that uh, one belongs to is uh, almost uh, uh, automatic, and hence it is uh, inevitable that events like this would need to be held by a community that is loyal to uh, to its country and that wants to express its uh, feelings and uh, uh, about uh, the passing away, especially when it happens, of uh, of the monarch of uh, of the nation. Absolutely, and uh, just more on that, um, the latest report shows that a government queue tracker estimates that the wait time is at least 11 hours with the queue snacking over four miles which is seven kilometers across london mm-hmm. um so so it says that earlier we reported that queue time was around nine hours uh but we've just heard that has jumped considerably so if you're hoping to join the queue to the Queen's uh, lying in state, there are a few things you need to know before you leave. Number one is that be prepared for a long wait. The government is giving regular updates on the length of the line um, with a feed on YouTube showing the back of the queue at the moment. It's uh, 4.4 miles long and the nearest landmark is the uh, Bermondsey Beach. The estimated queue time is at least 11 hours um, and it further says that you can leave the queue to go to the toilet and there are more than 500 portable toilets at the various points along the route and various businesses um, are keeping their doors open for extended hours so that people can use their toilets. And uh, there is disabled access the queue and uh, Westminster Hall both have step-free access and there is a separate ca- accessible queue for those who needed beginning at Tate Britain and time uh, timed entry slots are being issued to join a queue along Billbank. Guide guide dogs and other assistant dogs are allowed inside Westminster and British Sign uh, language interpreters are available. And travelling might take longer than usual. Uh, you should check the latest travel information on the uh, Transport for London website before you do set off. Um, so that's just a little bit update mm. with the if you do want to queue. I mean, I, I was uh, speaking to my colleague at work, um, who who is uh, 
uh, you know he he he's been brought up here and he and he was mentioning to me um that you know when he when he was born is actually that's when uh, the queen had uh, taken the taken the title as the queen um so i mean she she oh. was she, she So, so so 1952 yeah so okay. he was saying that he was born okay. just around that time uh-huh. uh, so he goes throughout his life he's seen the queen so to to see the queen now pass away is uh, very very uh, heartbreaking for him mm-hmm. to be to be honest because mm-hmm. she's been she's been always around there and he is also uh, looking to queue uh, to see the last glimpse of the okay. queen mm-hmm. um In fact I mean uh, brother Willie you mentioned the promised messiah peace be upon him mm. um and the promised messiah peace be upon him he at the time uh, of british india uh you know he actually wrote a book called a gift for the queen and uh, so the diamond jubilee for her majesty queen victoria was celebrated with great pomp and show in uh, june 1897 throughout the british india and since the purpose of the event the promised messiah peace be upon him the founder of the md muslim community was to propagate the unity of god and his message and he found a way to serve those who uh, those objectives at that occasion and he published uh, the booklet uh, the tofa kasriya which is translated as the gift for the queen on 25th of may uh, 1897 in addition to uh, in addition to uh, facilitating her majesty the promised messiah he made the following points with great subtlety and wisdom on the truthfulness of the holy prophet peace be upon him the truthfulness of islam and its teachings that can bring about international peace a proposal for her majesty to organize a conference of great religions a strong plea for her majesty to clear hazrat isa peace be upon him jesus of the accusation of having been accursed um and an undertaking to show a sign of his own truthfulness provided that her majesty would agree to accept his message in case of fulfillment and adding that he would accept death penalty if he is unable to show a convincing sign so you know it just goes to show you that even at the time of the promised messiah peace be upon him um he very much uh, respected the uh, british monarchy and reason being was that at that time in india uh, before the uh, british empire uh, muslims were also ruled over the the sikh empire and it was at that time that uh, there was no freedom of religion you know muslims were not allowed to call for prayer uh, they were not allowed to gather in the mosque so there was a lot of restriction so it was at that time when british India was formed um you know Muslims and very other religions were given that right to for religious freedom and in even in this book he has praised uh the British empire for for their works and you know giving that free freedom of thought and uh, freedom of religion um so it's worth reading this book thank you very much very well said um Just on to one, I, I know that um, uh, the mission in charge and the vice president of the Abdi Muslim community, Imam Atalmiji Rashid, was there paying his respects. Mm. I saw him. Did you have, have you seen a clip I, of him? I actually didn't. Uh, okay, yeah, I saw a clip of him actually 
paying his respects to uh, at Westminster Hall, where um, there where the Queen is at the moment. This was uh, co- coverage by the media. Yes. So this is uh, yesterday uh, oh, okay. that he was there. Um, I, are you intending to join the queue? <laughs> <laughs> you see, uh, I'm of a little advanced age, and I don't think I'll be able to uh, uh, to wait that long. Yeah. But uh, somebody as young and uh, sprightly as you would be able to do it. But I suppose you've got other duties. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, as far as uh, uh, other matters are concerned... Um, we know that the funeral is going to be taking place on Monday. It's a bank holiday. Uh, many businesses are going to be closed, uh, including McDonald's. I don't know why I mention it, but I, I it just my my son was telling me that it's uh, going to be opening on at 5 p.m. Mm. on uh, on Monday, and will be closed before yeah, in order to um, uh, respect the. Um, the uh, the the day. Um, the, on to other news. Um, what uh, has caught uh, uh, people's eyes uh, is uh, the news that the trust government. Uh, it hasn't been formally announced, but uh, certainly this is what uh, is being muted, and that is that it's going to uh, scrap caps on bankers' bonuses. Uh, this has brought about some consternation especially during these times of uh, the cost of living crisis. Uh, bankers who some uh, say are already um, overpaid and uh, and should have their bonuses restricted or removed altogether, let alone be uh, open to receive an open-ended amount uh, in such uh, sums, uh, some argue. Um, so they are especially uh, up in arms. Um, and this is uh, so when... Uh, uh, they are accused of being responsible for the banking crisis in 2008, and many accuse the bank, the banks, uh, for exacerbating the current inflation crisis. Uh, this is because it indulged in quantitative easing, that is, printing more money uh, during the COVID crisis, and then uh, failing to control runaway inflation by taking measures earlier in raising interest rates. So. Uh, with this background, to reward them by uh, unbridled bonuses uh, is not uh, going to be popular, uh, is, has come in for a lot of criticism. The government, uh, to, just to give balance to this particular story and to mention the other side, the government, along with the supporters of the bankers, argue that removing the cap on bonuses uh, on bankers is necessary so that we can attract the most competent professionals in this uh, area of work. Uh, we are able to draw them from New York and Frankfurt uh, and draw them to these shores uh, so that they can uh, um, work uh, in the industri- industry, uh, draw in better investment, and then usher in an economic well-being of the nation. The bonuses, they argue, are intended to reward uh, behavior during the year that has increased the profits of the bank or some relevant parts of its business, uh, as shown in the annual accounts. And now, the fact that such bonuses can amount to as much as 150% of the basic salary is disquieting. Uh, it calls to question, uh, what are we as a society prioritizing? 
uh, would we consider giving such a bonus to Herculean performances by those working in other walks of life, running our transport system, for example, or preserving law and order like our police do? Uh, what about the outstanding performances of NHS workers during the pandemic? Nobody's talking about additional bonuses or any bonuses for them. Uh, they're having their work cut out just to get the government to have their pay keep up with inflation. Many nurses are having to resort to food banks, uh, such as the paucity of their remuneration. So there's food for thought there as to what you think. If you've got a view on it, then please do ring in. As mentioned uh, in the early part of the program, our number is 0208-687-7878, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK if you want to share your views with the rest of the listeners on any of the topics we may be discussing. Anything from you, sir? Um... Nothing are, are you a tennis a tennis fan? Roger Federer is uh, is retiring. I'm told. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. And so there's uh, great sadness uh, because uh, he won Wimbledon. I think it was 2003, the same year that we opened our mosque here, mm. and um, has dominated the, the tennis scene. Has won 20 titles, um, and this uh, when we've had other uh, very good uh, tennis players around like uh, Djokovic and uh, uh, Nidal, mm. uh, Rafael Nidal. And some say Andy Murray is also in that bracket, but uh, others would argue. And, and I believe he's going to be also be playing his final match before he does retire. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that'll be, that'll be here as well. It uh, will be taking place here in London. Yes. So the tennis scene seems to be uh, tennis it seemed to be changing uh, with uh, his exit and also the exit of uh, Serena Williams that also retired I think this this year as well. So um, clearly um, there's been a dramatic change in that part of uh, the sporting um, the sporting scene. Right, um, shall we move on? Or There is one other story I suppose that we can just uh, mention. This is uh, what's happening in, uh, in Europe. Uh, recent days there were jubilation in Ukraine and Western capitals as the Ukrainian forces struck a brilliant counterattack to take back uh, vast regions of the Donbass region. Uh, the success has been attributed to intelligence and more sophisticated weapons provided to Ukraine by the Americans. The development indicates that the war in the region has far more many months to go, meaning more destruction and deaths is to follow. Meanwhile, sanctions on Russia, as European uh, President Ursula von der Leyen recently pointed out, uh, are here to stay. And not that it is making much difference to Moscow, it seems. Its oil revenues have rocketed and it has been able to sell its surplus gas and energy to China and India in huge quantities at a discount. Uh, let's hope that this uh, conflict can be quickly brought to an end uh, because while it continues, uh, the only sector that seems to be winning or benefiting is the arms industries in both uh, the West and in, the, in, in, in Russia. And uh, what we're losing as a consequence is uh, human lives. And uh, that is something that is very sad to observe. Uh, Right, uh, we have to press on. And uh, the main story, uh, the first of the main story that we want to actually focus our attention on is this uh, particular particular item we picked up um, 
uh, something that the Church of England has found. It's about younger generation turning to prayer. Uh, the younger generation, uh, this particular item reads, are far more likely to pray than older generations. This is due to the rising popularity of mindfulness, meditation, and spirituality. And that is what has encouraged them to connect with faith, according to the Church of England. A recent survey found that one-third of 18 to 34-year-olds have prayed in the last month compared to 25% of people aged 25 and over. Uh, the younger generation has was also more likely to have said a prayer at any time around 56% said they had prayed compared to 41% of the over 55s according to the poll uh, carried out by Savanta Comrades. Uh, the most reverend uh, Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, said the figures showed that people are longing for connection during a time of uncertainty. The Archbishop told the Telegraph, as Christians, praying, prayer is the bedrock of our faith and deepens our relationship and understanding of God. The results of the survey on prayer show that many people still long for that connection with something and someone beyond themselves. At this time of uncertainty in our world, where we face many pressing issues such as the climate emergency, wars, famine and the cost of living, reaching out in prayer to the God who loves us and longs to be known to us can bring peace and transform lives. If younger people want to pray, then let our churches be places where prayer is taught and experienced. And experienced. So we are hoping to be joined by Ruth Omstone very shortly. Uh, Ruth is the co-director of the Mindfulness Initiative, a leading global think tank and policy institute that grew out of a program of mindfulness teaching for politicians in the UK Parliament. The Mindfulness Initiative provides the Secretariat to the Mindfulness All-Party uh, Parliamentary Group and works with legislators around the world who practice mindfulness and uh, helps them to make capacities of heart and mind. Um, so this is uh, what uh, that is uh, about. And, uh, you know, it gives them, um, it enables them to make capacities of heart and mind serious considerations of public policy. Well, uh, we have, I'm pleased to say, uh, Ruth on the line. Thank you very much for joining us on The Breakfast Show, uh, Ms. Ormiston. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us about the Mindfulness Initiative and how and why it was set up, why it has become an important component within uh, Parliament and public policy? Yeah, of course. So the Mindfulness Initiative is a UK charity and public policy institute. And we look at the evidence base for mindfulness and compassion training and we match it up to public policy concerns. And we grew out of a teaching program in the UK Parliament that was set up in 2013. We didn't actually do the teaching. That was done by Oxford University Mindfulness Centre. And since the introduction of that in 2013, mindfulness has been taught to hundreds of parliamentarians and their staff. But after a number of politicians had learnt the practice, they became really curious about its wider benefits for society. 
So an all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness was formed with the intention of looking at how and in what ways mindfulness might be useful in public policy. And in 2015, the Mindfulness Initiative worked with that group to run a series of public inquiry events looking at the evidence base for mindfulness and the potential need for it across four different sectors, health, education, the workplace, and criminal justice. And the result of those inquiries was the publication of a seminal report called Mindful Nation UK, which gave recommendations across each of those four sectors. And then in 2018, the Mindfulness Initiative continued to do its work, became an established charity, and we will keep exploring the potential for mindfulness to make a difference in people's lives, putting it at the heart of public policy and writing reports that really give people the language to be able to frame the evidence and talk about it in an easily digestible way. How would you define mindfulness? Is it being aware or is it being sensitive? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there's a lot of um, misrepresentation about what mindfulness is. It's obviously increased hugely in popularity, but that has led to a bit of confusion about what we're actually talking about. So mindfulness is a particular way of paying attention. And through seemingly simple exercises with mindfulness, we practice paying attention to our present moment experience whether that's what's going on in our minds, uh, with our feelings, our body sensations, or the external environment. And we do that with an attitude of openness, of curiosity, and care. And so that doesn't mean you don't ever plan or think about the future, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. um, your approach to both the past, the present, and the future might be different due to the fact that you're really practicing this of being more in tune with what and how you're really doing right now. Um, So in that respect, by focusing on present thoughts and feelings, people can often begin to experience greater resilience, focus, Mm -hmm. and overall life satisfaction. Mm -hmm. They're not fast-forwarding, I guess, to an imagined future or ruminating over a past that may not be that healthy or constructive. Right. And it's a natural trait that we all have. So mindfulness is a natural kind of capacity, but it's something that we need to almost relearn okay. because we've fallen out of the habit of doing it. Right, something we need to harness. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, my colleague will also be asking a few questions, but before he does that, I mean, can you tell us a bit more about uh, your international influence and collaboration with other countries? Because I understand that the this initiative is not just restricted or in, its influence is not just restricted to the UK. Yeah. So because the UK Parliament has been something of a success story in terms of politicians and their staff taking up mindfulness training, it's been a useful blueprint for other legislators to look at. And there are some absolutely incredible initiatives underway across the globe, many of which we've had the privilege of witnessing Um, And in some cases, supporting with our guidance based on the experience that we've had here in the UK. So there are now mindfulness initiatives or programmes for politicians or civil servants in Wales, France, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. There are around 15 countries we're aware of that have introduced it in their legislatures. Wonderful. 
good morning, uh, Ruth Olmsten. I, I want to ask you, can mindfulness reduce the incident of uh, mental health problems such as depression as well as uh, tackle long-term health conditions and improve public health? Yeah, great question. So there is increasing amounts of evidence to show that mindfulness can help with a whole range of mental and physical health conditions. I think it's really important not to get carried away with the evidence. It's still developing in some areas and mindfulness isn't a cure-all or a panacea. And also really important to acknowledge that the sources of stress and mental ill health themselves, such as poor housing, social deprivation, inequality, need to be addressed as well. But there are an increasing number of research trials on the effectiveness of mindfulness in certain areas. And there's a particularly robust evidence base around mindfulness and the treatment of depression. So mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is a specific eight-week course which combines mindfulness techniques with cognitive behavioural therapy. And there have been trials that have shown that MBCT, as it's known as a shorthand, (laughs) is just as effective as maintenance antidepressants in preventing relapse. And NICE, which is the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, and and that's the body that makes evidence-based recommendations guiding decisions in health, public health and social care. They've recommended mindfulness cognitive therapy as a treatment for the prevention of relapse of depression since 2009. And then in June this year, they actually updated their guidelines on management of treatment of depression. And uh, they also recommended mindfulness as one of a number of options to be offered to people who are currently experiencing a less severe episode of depression. So that was quite a significant step because it recognises the evidence base to show that mindfulness and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy in particular can be an effective treatment for people with a current episode of depression as well as MBCT being used to prevent relapse. No, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. And do you think mindfulness can be a way to tackle depression? I mean, you did mention just now, uh, but do you think that it's a way to tackle not only depression, but anxiety, stress <clears throat> in the criminal justice system? Yeah, another really good question. And a, re- a report on the future of prison mental health published last year, commissioned by NHS England, found that nearly half the prison population have a diagnosis of depression or anxiety, and suicide rates have reached record levels. So clearly much more needs to be done to support the mental health of prison population. And as I've explained, mindfulness is useful for helpful, it's helpful for depression, anxiety and stress in the population at large. And our Mindful Nation UK report recommended that MBCT should be available within the prison population for the treatment of depression. Um, There have been indicative trials from the US that have been quite helpful and shown promising signs that mindfulness can help improve self-regulation, reduce anxiety, guilt, and also reduce drug use and associated attitudes and behaviours. There's a particular programme, a particular mindfulness intervention called Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention, which is targeted at introducing mindfulness techniques to help address and regulate addictive behaviours and thought patterns. So that's something that could also be looked at within the criminal justice system.
Great, fantastic, Ruth. And <clears throat> just uh, one final question from my side. Um, could you inform our listeners about the Reconnection Report and why is mindfulness important in tackling climate crisis? Yeah, of course. So as well as looking at the four sectors that I've mentioned in Mindful Nation UK, we also look at some of the policy issues that are really pretty entrenched and challenging and that we need different approaches to. So our reconnection report was written in collaboration with Lund University Centre for Sustainable Studies and it followed a series of in-depth interviews with politicians, policymakers and sustainability experts really looking at the psychological aspects of the climate crisis and the role that the mind has to play in relation to it. And that kind of identified four key interactions that the mind has with the climate crisis. And I'll leave people to read the report if they want to find out more detail about that. It's available free to download on our website. But out of all these interviews, a real common narrative for us was, was that there's a missing piece when it comes to how we're approaching the climate crisis. And then there's actually really important inner work required to come up with the solutions of the magnitude that we now need. That inner work needs to be urgently integrated with the external action. And we can't just simply continue to see the climate crisis as an external problem, something that's happening out there, that there's going to be an external and technical solution that comes up and solves it all for us. So our report talks about the climate crisis as a relationship crisis, characterised really by the breakdown and lack of conscious connection that we have with ourselves, each other, the planet that we share, and we suggest that mindfulness and compassion are foundational capacities which could help build that inner work and help the reconnection take place. And we make a number of policy recommendations for how that can happen. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Ruth Armstrong, um, co-director of the Mindfulness Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your expertise on the subject. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Okay. Right. uh, Moving on, uh, we've also got Ollie. He's the leader of the retreats at Shamam Trust. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. I'm sorry I don't have your surname, Ollie. Yeah, my name is uh, Ollie Frame. And um, by the way, it's, it's, it's the Shamam Trust. I'm not the Sharman Trust. Uh, so Sharpen, okay. yeah. I'm just writing your surname. It's Ollie Frame, is it? Yep, Frame, okay. as in picture. Sharpen, yes, okay. Um, uh, my apologies, okay. So it's Sharpen. Um, can you tell us about, about this trust and uh, how, is it, it's, uh, how is it founded? What's its aims? What are its, its activities? Yeah, so the Sharpen Trust was founded about uh, 40 years ago. In fact, it's, yeah, it's in its 40th year. And it exists to really promote um, a greater connected with, with nature. It exists to help people to connect with themselves through mindfulness meditation. And, um, yeah, to sort of have an experience of connection with community. These are, these are the, the sort of aims of the trust. Mm-hmm. So I understand it's a retreat. So is it a place where people can uh, congregate at? Is yeah. it at a particular location? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's in a sort of stunning location in, in Devon, in the hills of Devon. And um, it's, yeah, it's running a retreat program. We have about uh, 20 places on each retreat. 
they last maybe four or five days um, with um, guided by a couple of facilitators such as myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, is mindfulness something that uh, um, you engage in and is it something that you would say is linked to meditation or spirituality or even religion? Yeah, so uh, mindfulness is really just about being sort of aware and awake in the present moment and w without judgment. And we can do this when we're, you know, washing the dishes or getting the kids ready for school or as we walk to work. But also we can do this in a more dedicated, in a more focused way in, in meditation. So that's when we very specifically... <coughs> Um, direct our attention to a certain focus. It could be the breath or the sensations in the body. And we do this in this in this certain way. So we really just, with a kind of kind, friendly awareness of, of, of our chosen focus. And the idea is that uh, as we do this in meditation, then we this becomes more like our natural way of relating to our experience. So whether that be our emotions or, you know, a difficult experience we're having, so we're kind of reversing the usual tendencies of the mind. Mm. Right, my colleague will be asking a couple of questions before he does that. Um, do you find that this uh, kind of uh, of uh, retreat is becoming more popular? This kind of service is becoming more popular. Yeah, I mean it's becoming hugely popular. Every, every you know, I, I think almost everyone will have heard of mindfulness. Maybe they don't exactly know what it is, but. Um, it's become very popular, and the retreats have become a very popular way of doing it. We, we, we run quite a, a full program. You, we sometimes have three lots of retreats going on at the same time in different centers. Yeah, there's a sort of explosion of interest, which I, I think is a very beautiful thing. So. Do you have a lot of competition? <laughs> um, yeah, that's quite I mean, are, there, are, there, are there retreats also um, cropping up? Yes, there are. There's lots of retreats out there. Um, you know, and some are really excellent, and some maybe not so good. But uh, we, uh -huh. um, at the moment, we're, um, we're you're the best. We're enjoying a lot of popularity. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Thanks very much. No problem. Uh, good morning, uh, Ollie. Hope you're doing well. Um, I wanted to ask you why is nature important in mindfulness, and if you could describe the types of retreats you offer, and could this be beneficial to different people as well? Yeah. So. Um, we're we're very fortunate. I mean, sometimes mindfulness is practiced in in cities, of course, or, or wherever. It doesn't need to be practiced anywhere specific. But we're very fortunate in the Sharpen Trust to have 550 acres of you know woodland and forest and valleys and things. And it's just an extremely conducive setting to to practice in this way. So mindfulness is about really being present and alive in the senses, as I was saying before. And you know, when when we're in a beautiful place. Um, it's just it invites us to be present. It's very supportive, just to you know to be surrounded by trees and uh, plants and flowers that really just um, invite us to 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 delight in in, the, in their beauty. Really, so it's it's nature naturally invites us to be to be more present. But also, when we practice mindfulness meditation. The, the beauty of, of nature is just very naturally enhanced. I mean, people, you know, very often remark this when they come out, when they, when they come to do, to do meditation at our retreats, and then when they go out into nature, everything is so much more colorful and vibrant and alive. So there, it's, there's really, 
they really enhance and magnify one another, being in nature and 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 mindfulness. Fantastic, uh, great work you are doing. And uh, just one final question from my side, and then I'll pass the mic on to our host. So, what impact has uh, Sharp and Trust had on people's <coughs> overall health and well-being? Um, what's that on its overall? Uh, what's what's the overall um, impact it's had on people's health and their well-being? Yeah, well, of course, that's. Um, I mean, we've had um, tens of thousands of people over the over the last forty years come through our programs, and you know, many different individual experiences. But we, you know, we always very carefully read the feedback, and you know, for many, it's really a life-changing event. And some people, you know, come. You know, when they're already hanging by a thread, perhaps just, you know, burning out exhaustion or just really needing a, a change somehow. And, um, you know, coming on retreats, they, for a start, they experience what it's like to unplug from their mobile phone for for four or five days, which is one of the things that we, we ask of people to, to let go of contact with the, with, with technology, for example. And, um, you know, they often report just, uh, that you know that was a sort of the beginning of a different phase in their life and one where they just make more time for themselves for their feelings for nature for the things that matter so you know that's uh, that's really quite frequent feedback that we you know we receive the you know, really the benefits of actually just taking some time out you know this is the, the, the wonderful thing about retreats just to um, re- reconnect and reappraise Ollie, how how long do do these uh, sessions last for? How many days or weeks? Yeah, so we we in our I mean, of course, every retreat center will be different, but in our particular retreats at Sharpham, we we have three day retreats, uh, three night retreats, three four day retreats, five day retreats. So some of those are in the woodland, or some of those are in the in the house, Sharpham House itself, and. Okay. Yeah, so that, that's the length of the program. Right. Okay, excellent. Uh, uh, good work that you're doing. Uh, wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Uh, right, uh, moving on, we've got another expert on the line. It's uh, Professor Crane. Professor Crane uh, he directs the Centre for Mindfulness uh, Research and... Uh, Mindfulness research, right? Right. So uh, my mistake is uh, Richard Burnett. That's on the line. Um, uh, good morning, uh, Richard. Uh, my my apologies for um, mis uh, misunderstanding who's on the line. You're the co-founder and chair of mindfulness in schools. Is that right? Yes. No. Good morning. That's uh, very. It's very flattering to be mistaken for Rebecca Crane. So I'll take that. Are you aware of her? Yes, yes, yeah, I a very see. Blue, uh, mindfulness expert. Okay. Um, anyway, for the benefit of our uh, listeners, can you kindly uh, tell us about uh, MISP? I understand that you, that's what you represent, uh, Mindfulness in Schools Project. And what's yes. the aims of, of this charity? Yes, that's right. So, so Mindfulness in Schools Project was set up in 2009. And our aim really was to bring mindfulness to young people and those who care for them. Um, it was really a group of teachers who were already school teachers who were already, you know, very experienced mindfulness practitioners. 
who wanted to sort of translate the skills that they had and how important it was and how, how many benefits they've had in their own lives and, and, and taking that into school communities. And well, why is mindfulness important for children and those working for caring for them? Um, I think there are, there are lots of reasons. It can bring lots of benefits. Um, you know, the obvious one that gets talked about a lot nowadays with young people is mental health. So, um, you know, it, it could be low mood or anxiety or just, just you know, being stressed as a, as, as a modern school kid. Uh, so, so you've got, you, you want to try and help people manage the difficult. But even those who are, who are doing okay in life, you want them to really flourish. Um, and I think the whole spectrum of um, mental health, you're hoping just to nudge that a little bit further towards, you know, the well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one that, that's one of the most obvious benefits. The others, that, the others though, are, are also potentially significant learning, you know, improvements potentially in things like attention, concentration, um, social and emotional. You know, we hear a lot about people just finding that their relationships, it, it sort of oils the wheels of difficult relationships, even if for kids that's just, you know, my, my brother keeps stealing my, my PlayStation controller. It's really nice that, that you don't suddenly get angry with each other. You know, you can manage those those difficult emotions a little bit more skillfully. And the other thing, lastly, I would say is physical health. You know, one of the one of the fascinating things about mindfulness is it it, it does um, shine a light on the connections between mental health and physical health. Because mm-hmm. if you are slightly less stressed, the you know the, the cortisol in your body is reduced your immune system therefore is, is is enhanced and you know you might just get colds a, a little bit less often than you would normally at school hmm. is there any evidence that you can point to that uh, supports what you're saying yeah i mean there's so much evidence it would it would be hard to to to, to, to go through even that even the headlines but i would say if i can recommend your listeners to go to our website, which is mindfulnessinschools.org. And if you then look at mindfulness and education, there's, there's actually a whole section which we call the evidence. Mm-hmm. And it looks at published papers on our various curricula, published papers on mindfulness for adults, and other related research. Right. Anyway, my colleague has some questions for you as well, if you don't mind. Okay, great. Uh, good morning, Richard. As uh, good morning. Uh, unfortunately, we are reaching the eight o'clock news, but uh, just before no, uh, we okay. can Understood. we can squeeze one question in. Yeah, um, yeah. Would you recommend parents to be encouraged to incorporate principles of mindfulness in what is setting and how frequently? Well, I, I, I guess what I would say is the most important thing to pe- for parents is to be mindful. I don't think they necessarily have to incorporate it as a sort of practice or skill that they're teaching their children. I think it's just leading by example. You know, if your kids see you being very reactive and getting very angry when you're stuck at a red traffic light, that's signaling to them that that's okay. Whereas if actually you use the red light at the traffic lights to just stop, you know, and breathe and, and, and take a moment just to settle, then they'll think, mm. oh, okay, so that's what I do when the car's stuck in a traffic jam. And I think modeling um, mindful uh, approaches to situations that might normally be difficult, that is the best thing any parent can do for their kid. Fantastic. Richard Bernard, co-founder and chair Mindfulness in Schools. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a lovely morning. Thank you.
0208687778 that's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us uh what are your thoughts brother what, what, what did you think of uh, uh this particular segment and uh, our experts well uh, we had an array of uh, experts uh, talking from different angles um, I, I, I I'm actually <coughs> thinking that uh, you know you and me can go to the retreat it's sounding quite lovely to be honest at the, mm. at the uh, three at days the, or seven days yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> good idea yes yeah but uh, I'm sure there will be uh, the management will be working to separate us <laughs> there as well mm. Um yes it's it's quite interesting I didn't know that some, something like this existed anyway but uh, I'm sure we'll continue this discussion after the uh, 8 o'clock news which is coming up uh, uh, very shortly and we'll also be dealing with the second of our main topics about uh, uh, changing views on religion here's the 8 o'clock news you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show. The voice of Islam, Imam. With Imam Tawqeet Tanweer, Masah Hulidam. And the time is uh, approaching five minutes past eight. It is Friday the 16th of September 2022. Before the break, we were looking at the subject of younger generation turning to prayer. Apparently, the Church of England is, uh, is pointing to a survey carried out by Saventa Comrades that suggests that the younger generation uh, is turning more to prayer than uh, the older generation, according to their findings. Uh, we spoke to a number of experts. Uh, Ruth Olmston was one uh, coordinator of the Mindfulness Initiative. We also spoke to Ollie Frame, uh, leader of retreats at Sharpham uh, Trust. And uh, finally, we spoke to Uh, Richard uh, Burnett, the co-founder and chair of Mind- Mindfulness in Schools, uh, before the break to lend their expertise uh, so that we can understand this particular subject better, uh, talked a lot about mindfulness and uh, how that is important uh, in our lives. Um, we should be speaking to Professor Crane shortly. Uh, Professor Crane is uh, directs the Center for Mindfulness Research and Practice at the University of Bangor. Uh, she trains internationally in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, <clears throat> so that's mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is what I was saying. Her research focuses on how mindfulness-based programs can be implemented with integrity into mainstream practice settings and how they can support inner change that contributes to collective and uh, systemic societal shifts towards a more equitable and sustainable world. Uh, Professor Crane has written Mindfulness-Based uh, um, Cognitive Therapy Distinctive Features 2017, co-authored uh, authored Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy with People at Risk of Suicide, that was also 2017, co-edited uh, uh, Essential Resources for Mindfulness Teachers in 2021 and is a Principal Fellow with the Higher Education Academy. So it's wonderful to find that some someone of that repute is uh, is uh, with us. Thank you very much for joining us on the on the Breakfast Show, Professor. Thank you very much, 
You're very welcome. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, um, can you kind of tell us about, about mindfulness and uh, some of its principles? We're trying to f- define mindfulness. Uh, we were trying to do that with our uh, other experts. I, um, I want greater clarity, if you don't mind, and I think I'll get that from you. Absolutely. It was lovely to hear Ollie and Ruth and Richard before the news. And uh, so I'll really be building on what they've already uh, communicated. But mindfulness is a a natural capacity. So everybody has moments of mindfulness in their lives. And it's really these moments when we're present and available and open to what's happening within our own bodies, but also in the world around us. Um, and it, but it's also very natural for us as humans to be distracted and to be fragmented and to get caught in negative thinking loops uh, that, that drive emotional distress and sort of automatic patterns and habits of behavior. And mindfulness, in a way, is the opposite of this. So it's the opposite of being on automatic pilot. It's, it's the moments when we're actually able to... Uh, very deliberately be present with our experience and it's a trainable capacity so we can strengthen our skills through practice in in being present and available to our experience so that we can more easily step out of the grooves the unhelpful grooves that our mind gets into and come back to presence come back to awareness come back to kindness mm-hmm. mm. So is it, is it trying to reorganize the way you think? Uh, is it uh, self-reflection in that uh, particular way of uh, approaching matters? Well, it has that effect. Um, so so the, the effect of interrupting the habit patterns of, my, of our minds uh, has the effect of just really changing how we see experience, how we relate to experience. So, you know, in a way, you know, for example, mindfulness is is used as a way of of dealing with pain, with physical pain in our lives. And the pain may not change. The pain, you know, is a a fact of life. But actually, rather than fighting and struggling and getting tense about it, the training in mindfulness can help us to meet that pain with a degree of responsiveness, with a degree of care for ourselves in the midst of what's challenging, um, with a sense of what, what would be skillful, how can I best look after myself in the midst of this. So although the, the kind of core challenge isn't changed, how we are with it is changed. And actually that radically changes everything. It radically changes the experience of the pain itself. Uh, so it's this relationship that we have with experience that that um, that that shifts when we bring mindfulness to experience. And uh, is it uh, in any way linked to spirituality, prayer, meditation? Well, many people express that when they practice mindfulness, it it actually brings them closer to their own tradition, to their own spiritual practice. People talk about mindfulness as being a, a gateway to prayer or increasing their sense of connection with God or enabling more meaningful prayer. So, you know, as I was saying earlier, we, we all have this tendency for the mind to be distracted and fragmented. Mindfulness 
brings us more into a coherence, into an alignment in the present moment, and that enables prayer to be more meaningful. In fact, interestingly, we, uh, one, we have a master's program at Bangor University for people to train to offer mindfulness-based um, programs to others. And one of our students recently conducted a research study uh, where she interviewed eight women, um, Muslim women, about their experiences of practicing mindfulness. And one of the things that they were saying was, these women were saying was that most Muslims would be familiar with mindfulness because it's, it's very much what, what is taught in, in the Islamic context in the sense of bringing the capacity to bring presence and awareness to daily life. Um, so it, it's, it, there's a lot of resonance between, um, you know, our personal values and what we care about and mindfulness has a support to that. Mm. <clears throat> My colleague is with me. He'll be asking you a few questions. Right. Uh, good morning, Professor. Good morning. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you, is there evidence to suggest that mindfulness can be used as a form of treatment? Yes. Yeah, so 30 years ago, John Kabat-Zinn, actually 40 years ago, I apologize, John Kabat-Zinn developed this approach called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And what he was doing then was synthesizing uh, mindfulness as it has previously been taught in uh, Buddhist context into a form that could be delivered in mainstream healthcare. And he developed this eight-session program that, that became known as mindfulness-based stress reduction. And he did um, research on the use of this program in the context of people with chronic pain, with psoriasis, and with a range of other chronic health conditions. And the evidence over the last 40 years has, has grown and developed and is now very substantive in a range of different conditions. And the, uh, the approach that was uh, named by Ruth in the uh, piece earlier, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, is an, is an approach that was developed out of mindfulness-based stress reduction. And there are actually many other mindfulness-based programs that have been developed for specific health conditions. Uh, so there's gold standard evidence now that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is effective in supporting people who are vulnerable to depression for, to, to enable them to stay well in the long term. And it also has evidence for use for people with moderate depression, as you know, in um, current moderate depression. So it's, we haven't got enough time to go into the breadth of the evidence, but the basic message is there's, a, there's evidence for the use of, of mindfulness-based programs in a, quite a broad range of health conditions, particularly chronic health conditions where it may well be that, that actually the reality is that this person has to, has to find a way to live with the challenge of ongoing health, cha- health issues. Um, and really what the, what the mindfulness course enables is an exploration of how do I do that well? How can I really empower myself to meet this challenge um, and bring, bring forth my best self, as it were, to the challenge of living with, with um, ongoing health difficulties? Fantastic. It sounds very interesting. And also, can you tell us about your study on uh, healthcare systems and uh, how this could be successfully uh, be implemented? Mm, indeed. So, so over the years, we've been training mindfulness teachers uh, to, to offer mindfulness courses in the health service, in schools, in prisons, etc. 
And one of the things that became very clear to us in that process is that it, you can train people really well and build their skills, but actually they often find it hard when they go back to their working context in the health service, for example, to actually implement the program because implementing any new evidence is challenging. Um, but implementing mindfulness is it has some particular aspects that that are that require um, that are sometimes countercultural in the context of our healthcare system, and so it can be an uphill job to actually bring these programs into being in in our health service. So we were really interested to discover because there were, there, across the UK there are some areas that are doing that really well, really successfully and other areas that are struggling. And we were really interested to discover what, what were the factors that enabled some areas to thrive and to really build services, and other areas were still struggling. Because theoretically, you should be able to go anywhere in the UK to your general practitioner, and if you experience recurrent depression, you, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy should be one of the treatment options available to you. The reality is that the access is very variable still, and, and it's still a, a work in progress to enable um, to, to build capacity to enable everybody to access it who wants it. Um, but we found a range of factors that, that made a big difference, including having uh, champions who, you know, so people who are working within the healthcare system who really cared about bringing mindfulness courses to their context, and they were really going the extra mile. It, it involved management support. It involved building mindfulness into care pathways. Uh, so it, there's, there's a lot of different factors that really support building a case for embedding mindfulness programs into healthcare systems. And it, it's, it's a piece of work. It takes time and energy of, and engagement from a range of people over time. Thank you for that. And uh, just one final question from my side. Um, can mindfulness be helpful for those with ADHD, intellectual disabilities or anger? Yes. Well, there is research in all of those areas. So, I mean, at, you know, clearly ADHD is a, is a, is a challenge and it's a distraction challenge. And mindfulness is very much about learning to manage distractions. So mindfulness is not an easy course for people with ADHD to engage with. But there has been some really skillful work on how to adapt mindfulness so that it's taught in ways that are accessible for people with ADHD challenges, both children and adults. Um, and the evidence is, is, is very clear that it, that it does help. For those who are able to engage in the program, it does help. Um, there's also what, some beautiful work happening in the context of intellectual disability. Um, so here the programs in, have been adapted to make them very straightforward and clear to understand. There's a beautiful practice called the Souls of the Feet Meditation, which teaches pe um, people and is useful for all of us. Um, but it's a practice that's been particularly developed in the, in the context of working with people with intellectual disability and you might even just do it right now so so just dropping your attention down into through the body into the contact of your feet with the ground and really giving yourself over to feeling the sensations that are here um, and tuning into that sense of weight and touch and contact of feet with ground and this very simple act of 
training people to shift from loops of thinking into the body and using anchors such as the contact of feet with ground um, is, is incredibly powerful. It's very, it sounds very simple, but it's actually very powerful in shifting us out of ruminative thinking patterns. And actually, you, you mentioned anger also. So we did a, a study based on work that started in the United States um, by a colleague called Nirbhai Singh, who developed the Souls of the Feet meditation practice. And he developed a whole program that was for people with both intellectual disability and anger problems. And the, 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 the course was taught to the, these participants along with their carers and demonstrated that um, people who'd taken the course were, were really able to practice these skills in a meaningful way when anger was coming to them. They actually were able to recognize the shift within their bodies of the emotion of anger rising and to take skillful action to, um, to, 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 to steer their, their behavior in ways that were wise rather than reactive. Fantastic. Uh, Professor Rebecca Crane, PhD, uh, you direct the Center for Mindfulness Research and Practice at Bangor University. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Right. Um, uh, I don't know whether we can say something from an Islamic angle, but I, I, I think, uh, Imam Sufi, I mean, this, this aspect of Reflection and mindfulness is something that's very encouraged in Islam, isn't it? I, I recall certain verses in the Holy Quran about uh, talking favorably about those people who reflect about uh, the heaven and the earth standing, uh, sitting on their sides, uh, and that this is not in something that has been created in vain. That kind of reflection is encouraged, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. and you know, at the end of the day, if we look at the Holy Quran to give us purpose in life, you know, the Holy Quran at one place it says, uh, "In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful." That we have not created man and the jinn except that they may worship me. So God Almighty, in this particular verse, He explains. That uh, the purpose of our of the creation is that man he should turn towards God and he should recognize Him. Uh, he should and he should reflect upon the heavens and the earth um, and incline towards that one particular being. Um, and to be honest, we we live in a world um, in this twenty first century. There's so much going on. Uh, you know, we've got our phones, uh, our computers. There's there's so much going on that you know one can be overwhelmed by it. and uh, nowadays as uh, figures are showing that so many people are uh, going through some sort of mental stress or depression so or you know at, at this particular time it's very important that we incline towards god and we remember god um and we pray to him that may he elevate uh, our suffering um, and you know at, at the same time I would also say that you know we should uh, seek medical advice we should look after our physical health but uh, as as you know someone who is from a religious point of view I would say that prayer itself it's it is a great way uh, to relax oneself um, in fact prayer exercises the body and it relaxes the mind and it reminds the believer 
that he or she is not in total control but that there is a higher power that controls everything we can only tie up our camels and improve uh, and implore his help and prayer it reduces uh, rumination as one hands over one's worries and concerns to Allah and implores him in his mercy to remove them and those who believe and those whose heart finds comfort in the remembrance of Allah eh, it is the it is it is the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort so this is from surah rad chapter 13 verse 29 so religion uh, in a nutshell religion plays the most important role in coping with stressful circumstances it allows a person to count on the support of their god as well as the central authority and other members of their congregation uh, and and this coupled with the intrinsic spirituality promotes resilience and allows for healing In fact the promised Messiah peace be upon him the founder of the Umdi Muslim community he has said at one place that the purpose of religion is that man should obtain deliverance from his passions and should develop personal love for God Almighty through certain faith uh, in in his existence and his perfect attributes and such love of God is the is the paradise which will appear in diverse shapes in the hereafter thus the true purpose is to have full faith in him so uh, with that uh, brother vilith i'll hand the mic over to okay. you and then uh, you can uh, begin the new next segment for us please certainly thank you very much for that uh, a wonderful way to end that particular uh, part of uh, the program and uh, like you said uh, we need to move on and look at the second of our main stories it's about changing the views around religion um, is this something that is a consequence or has been the consequence of covid academics from around the world on investigating the impact of the pandemic on religion the three year project religion in societies emerging from covid-19 seeks to answer the question whether or, or not and to what extent the role of religion has uh, changed during the pandemic in four different locations the island of ireland canada germany and poland Uh, principal investigators from each of the four regions met in Belfast to launch the Recovery 19 project which also seeks to study how religious bodies contributed to the handling of covid around the world researchers will use surveys interviews and content from faith groups to reach their conclusions the team will focus on three core areas the discourse around health illness and science the relationship between religious organizations and governments and policy makers and the concept of digital innovation with religion researchers in the four regions will seek to explore and compare the key similarities and differences in their findings and what factors brought about change in the various societies at the launch uh, professor ganiel said uh, this project has its origins in research interests that we all had before the pandemic but in some ways the catalyst was research i conducted 
during the pandemic, a survey and interviews uh, with clergy on the island of Ireland. Uh, she found that across all faith communities, provision of online services had increased from 56% to 87% during the first two months of the 2020 lockdown, and that 70% of religious leaders intended to retain some aspects of online uh, ministries, even when restrictions eased. And she added, at the same time, faith leaders described the stresses and difficulties of comforting the sick and bereaved during this uncertain and dangerous time. Others worried that once lockdown restrictions eased, people would not come back to the church. Uh, Now, we have with us a senior lecturer at the Manchester School of Theatre, Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, Dr. Joshua Adelman, uh, who's also led the research project uh, British Ritual Innovation under COVID-19. Thank you very much for joining us on The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Adelman. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your field of study? Um, Sure. So, uh, I in a theatre department at a university, um, but I've always been interested in the overlap between uh, religious ritual and other uh, performances. Uh, I know that people don't really like to think of uh, religious rituals as plays, you know, as fiction, and they're not. Um, but one of the things that theatre studies has done in the last few decades is to think really seriously about kind of how we do meaningful things, how meaning and, and importance can be um, conveyed by the doing of actions, not just by the saying of words. And so I think there's something really interesting in that overlap. So I've written about um, about religious activities kind of with the tools that theater scholars usually use to analyze plays. Um, I've written about actual church and synagogue rituals. I've um, written about uh, public acts, things like political protests, and um, and things like public acts of mourning, like we're seeing now up and down the country, um, from a performance studies and theater studies uh, lens. And that's my background. And then when mm-hmm. COVID happened, I realized that so many people who lead religious communities found themselves suddenly in the position that a lot of artists do. Um, The show must go on. You have to serve the people in front of you. You have a community that has needs that that need to be met. But all of a sudden, the main means you have of serving those needs are gone. Mm -hmm. You can't meet in person. And you have to use these really quite unfamiliar technologies uh, or, or something. You have to improvise, frankly. Um, and usually I think a lot of clergy and other, other religious leaders don't see themselves as artists. But really, I would say they found themselves in the position that artists often do, um, where you have to rely on your own creativity and what other people are doing and try new things um, in order to get the job done. Mm. And it was really exciting to see this kind of burst of creativity and burst of, of creative thinking um, happen up and down, well, up and down the country, but up and down the world. Uh, And to see what that said about how we understand the place of religion in the modern world, how people's spiritual needs can be met, um, 
and and what that might say about the future. Mm. So, it, no one wants the crisis, but it was a productive time to think about some of these questions. Yeah, you know, very very interesting. Um, in case you don't know, there's there's two of us here. will be asking questions. Mm. My colleague will be asking questions in a few seconds after I've asked this one, which is you know, with the COVID restrictions, uh, most mm-hmm. religious practices were performed inside, um, you know, mm-hmm. inside the home. Um, how did different communities uh, cope in terms of how? Uh, you know, how small or how big they were? Um, different communities cope differently. You know, that's a silly answer, but it's the basics. The reality is that some some traditions find it easier to move everything into the home than others. Um, you know, and Juma is a perfect example. You, you can't really do online Juma. It's mm-hmm. not Juma. Um, you can do things. There are there are some really wonderful and important things that you can do online, but that experience of gathering for Juma is just not something that can be replicated online. You know, we had a case study of a Buddhist community in London. They found it much easier because their practices tend to be around meditation, which is a little easier to to do. Mm. You know, at home, um, we saw. I mean, we saw a couple of things. We saw people really trying very hard to build community through the computer screen so that they wanted to be, they had to be at home, but they didn't want to feel like they were alone. And that is difficult. It's not impossible, but it is hard to get a sense that you are really with other people through the computer screen. Um, that was the goal for so many people, to try to create that sense of community. And the ones who did, especially the, the kind of very small communities that would have less than 20 members, say, where basically it was just one big Zoom call, um, that did seem to work a lot better than the very large religious communities, the very large churches where it looked a little more like watching television, where you were watching an event happen somewhere else and you didn't really feel involved in it. So the quality of the event was less important than the sense of involvement in it. Um, but the other thing that we saw was, um, was was different kinds of communities. So families, especially extended families, became a kind of surrogate religious community. And I think especially a lot of people who, you know, lived with extended families um, in neighborhoods would do things like, when it was possible, gather in parks, gather within their home, try to make a special room or corner within their home at the, the place of prayer as, as a sacred space, um, you know, set apart with, say, carpets or, or, or depending on the tradition, other things that you would use. Um, and that became really important. So the idea of like carving out a sacred space within your daily domestic space um, was really interesting. And that's been, and that's about time too. You know, one of the things we saw was um, daily worship for those traditions that, that don't usually do that, uh, like, like Christianity, um, became much, much more popular. And the idea of having like a quick 10 minute service at the beginning of the day I mean, for a lot of Muslims, this is just called normal, but for a lot of Christians, this is not. Um, that became possible online. You just log in every morning and, and meet your friends and pray for 10 minutes. Um, and that became really popular and is, is still going in many cases. 
So this idea that there's a, a strict division between the home space and the worship space is really broken down. You know, as I said, for some traditions, that was an easier breakdown than others. But in basically all of them, we see some of that breakdown happening. Great, thank you. Great, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Joshua. Um, mm. And uh, I wanted to ask you, this is following the question on the COVID restrictions. Why do you mm. think the worshippers suffered in their practices to such an extent due to these restrictions? I mean, according to our surveys and interviews, and you know, I want to say we, we talked to uh, dozens, hundreds of people up and down the country of all faiths, um, both worship leaders and and um, congregants and, and worshipers. The main thing they missed was a sense of community. Um, and I think this is not, frankly, exclusive to to religious worship. I think all of us really missed a sense of community in those early days of 2020 when we felt extraordinarily isolated. But that seemed to be the single greatest thing that people missed. Um, it is possible, of course, to pray on your own, but the sense of being part of a group that is praying together um, is so powerful. And people really respond to that. It It is, um, it feels genuine, it feels powerful, it feels real, it feels spiritual. And that loss was very hard for people to take. Um, and I also think there was a, a difficult thing about continuity. Um, part of the point of most religious traditions is the idea that we are worshipping the same way that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and our great-great-grandparents did, that there is a, a sacred tradition that's been handed down to us. And that sacred tradition usually doesn't look like it's about Zoom, you know. Um, and it becomes, you know, even the word innovation in the title of our project was a real problem for people. And, you know, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't have used the word in the title. Uh, but that sense that there is something wrong, there's something really profoundly disappointing if we are not going to be worshipping in the way that we always have. Now, I should say as a historian, of course, rituals and worship does change over time. It, it always has. Like, just objectively speaking, there is change that you can observe through history. But it tends to be slow, minor, and th- and and authorized. You know, there's a, a very strong uh, chain of continuity. And the idea that this felt like a break in that chain was also really painful for people. So people, so these were the things that, that the, the creative good leaders tried to address. They tried to build a sense of community online. They tried to demonstrate the continuity between what they were doing during the pandemic and what had happened before. Um, and they, um, and to some extent, they were successful. You know, and we can talk about what techniques were more useful than others. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, clergy and, and, and religious leaders are, have been talking with each other. So they, of course, are now sharing stories. Okay, this tends to work, this doesn't work, this feels like a break, this doesn't feel like a break. Um, so the the community as a whole is, is really learning a lot from this, and I think we're taking those lessons forward. 
Fantastic. And also, could you tell us a bit about the worries some clergy had in regards to their online workshop, uh, online worship, sorry? Sure. Um, well, uh, there, there were a number of worries. I mean, there were the kind of, I'd say the short-term and the long-term things. Um, in the short-term, people just didn't know how to make it work. The people who lead worship um, are skilled professionals, as a rule. Well, if they're not you know, technically professionals, they tend to be very skilled. And they know how to use the traditional tools they have, the room, standing in front, speaking, the way they physically relate to worshippers, the way they, they organize an event, the way a good performer would, frankly, the way a good public speaker would. And all of a sudden, they have these unusual tools and techniques. Um, how do I use mute? Where do I put the camera? Um, how do I work with this with this strange thing where other people, for instance, can interrupt me a lot more uh, easily in a kind of socially acceptable way, you know, but taking themselves off mute um, than they ever would in the mosque or the church or the synagogue? Because you know, our social conventions are are are, are not there. The same way online. The same reason sometimes people can be horrible online, just because it feels like, well, nobody can see me. Well, actually, people can. Um, so there was that, and and there were some, frankly, just comic moments of people not knowing how to to work with a camera and a microphone. Um, and there were also some more serious things about about location. You know, a lot of people started to do this worship from their homes. A lot of worship leaders did it from their homes. And and worshipers would do it from their homes. And there was this big question of background. You know, do, do I want to go into the mosque, if I can, as a, as a leader, and film from the mosque? Is that better? Do I want to let people actually see where I am at home? Um, because that seems a little more intimate. Uh, private, maybe inappropriately so, I'm not sure, and people were negotiating this. Um, eventually, I think most of these questions got got sorted out as people did it more, as they developed their skills, as we all got you know, better at using things like Zoom, kind of unfortunately, but that's the reality. But the bigger question I think that came about about community, I think the thing that really scared a lot of Leaders, um, I'd say, especially in in say the Church of England, uh, though we saw it elsewhere as well, was what they would sometimes call the Hollywoodification or the Amazonification of it. The idea that well, I don't need to go to my church down the street now. I don't need to go to my local community because I'm going online. And once I'm online, it doesn't matter if it's you know a mile away or a thousand miles away. It, it's all just a different website. So people were very worried that worshippers would all go to the biggest, shiniest performances. Uh, and I use the word performance, you know, specifically. Very often, you know, the most famous preachers, the best choirs, the best video production, the, the most um, expensive produced thing. And that... Uh, the way everyone sees Hollywood movies and nobody really sees kind of home movies because, well, they're just not as good. That didn't happen. 
I think that's really that's an important finding from our research that really didn't happen. And I think the reason for it is, look, people like looking at pretty things, don't get me wrong. But with worship, what they really wanted was that sense of community. And these really highly produced, sophisticated productions feel like you're a spectator watching something rather than a worshiper participating in something. And people will visit that, but they don't want to stay. And most people seem to want a sense of religious community. So the um, the thing that I always say is the ideal number of mistakes to have in an online uh, worship service is low, but it's more than zero, actually. Uh, the odd mistake every now and then, the odd problem, makes it feel human and makes it feel real and personal, um, and people really like that. So so that big worry that kind of the the big players would gain and the small players would all be squeezed out, that doesn't seem to have happened. And I think that's very reassuring to a lot of people. Thank you. And just one final question from my side. Of course. Um, in the aftermath, how did people set it back into the in-person congregational prayers? I, I, well, this is, of course, again, different with every community. But I think one of the big things that was noticeable is for most communities, the number of people engaging online was extremely high. Uh, most communities had more people engaging online than they ever had in person. And part of that is accessibility. Uh, part of that was, you know, in a crisis situation, people people often want a religious experience. Um, but the reality is, is that there have always been people who are unable to attend worship in person, whether that's because of mobility issues, because they live too far away, because of busyness, because of uh, all number of, of factors. And I'd say this is especially the case for minority faiths, where, you know, getting to your local mosque, if you don't live in a heavily Muslim uh, neighborhood, is a lot more difficult than getting to your local church. It's just farther, uh, especially if you live in, say, you know, a very rural area. So there clearly was a desire for online worship. It made it much more accessible for a lot of people. And I think one of the things people have learned, have kind of decided is that if there, if we can reach people who we haven't been reaching before, then we need to be reaching people. Um, it is, a, you know, it's a kind of basic tenet of religious community to include people, to say that we want to reach out to people who are not being served. So I think a lot of communities are trying to keep something of the online work going on so that they, they can reach these folks who were not being reached before. Now, there are some real theological problems with that sometimes. You know, especially in, in, in faiths like Islam and Catholicism, where there are things you just can't do online that you can do in person. And I think the, the cleverer communities are not trying to move uh, uh, worship from in person to online. They're saying in person is what people want, in person is the real thing, that should be the center. But they are thinking about what can we learn from how we engage people online and keep doing that 
so that we can reach more people, so that we can um, reach a community that we couldn't before, and so we can maybe even rethink what geography is, you know, so we can serve a community that isn't just defined by our neighborhood, um, that's defined by anybody who wants to come, even if they're from, from hundreds or thousands of miles away. Now, how you do that is hard, and I think folks are still working through that. I'm actually just starting in November a follow-on project to this one, uh, asking exactly these questions, kind of what is the new normal? Um, and I'm going to be working with colleagues from across Europe on that. So it's not just not just a bridge project. Uh, but we're figuring that out. And I think it's, you know, it's a really exciting time to see what the future of religion looks like in the UK and around the world. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Joshua, for uh, joining us this morning and uh, sharing your thought on this particular subject. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Right, Amanda, it's uh, time for uh, the religious uh, and Islamic perspective on this. Yeah, so, um, I mean, throughout these uh, uh, particular two segments, I mean, we've talked about prayer a lot. Mm. So uh, I, th- I thought it would be important that we cover this subject of uh, prayer itself. And if we actually look to the Holy Quran, um, we see that in the Holy Quran in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, God Almighty, He says uh, that the, uh, he, say, he says that the, in the Holy Quran as an essential uh, prayer itself is an essential characteristic of a true believer and it says here in this particular chapter it says in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful that this is a perfect book and there is no doubt in it it is a guidance for the righteous and who believe in the unseen and observe prayer and spend out what we have provided for them so prayer or salat it helps us to get rid of sins, inclines us more and more towards God Almighty and goodly things. And so gradually it purifies us. But this is not the end. Prayer does not does much more than this. It brings man closer to his creator. The worshipper tries to imitate God in his most excellent attributes and is constantly transformed from a lowly and a worldly person to a highly noble and sublime servant of God. In fact, the Holy Quran mentions this distinctive quality of Salat by saying in chapter 29 verse 46, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, it says that and recite that which has been revealed to thee of the book and observe prayer and surely prayer restrains one from indecency and manifest evil. And remembrance of Allah is indeed the greatest virtue and Allah knows what you do. So here it says that prayer is indeed a sure and well tried prescription for purity of the heart and the soul. And it is through Salat alone that we are able to establish a living communion with Allah the Almighty. And uh, as... uh, Dr. Joshua was discussing that, you know, uh, throughout the pandemic, there was restriction and uh, to some degree and even uh, worshippers, they were told that, you know, well, you should pray at home. Uh, But now, by the grace of God Almighty, 
as uh, you know the mosques are open now uh, churches are open now we we can go and we can pray in congregation and uh, there's something which is holiness mentioned as well just recently on uh, last week sunday at the annual convention of the MDM Muslim Youth Association where we highlighted that now that the mosques are open um addressing the youth he said that they should make their utmost effort to attend the five daily prayers uh, in congregation as according to the holy quran uh, it is incumbent on a man that he should pray not only by himself but also in congregation and uh, the blessings of prayer is such we can find from the narrations of the holy prophet peace be upon him he explains that uh, he he gives the example of praying five times a day uh, to that of cleaning your physical body and and it is narrated that a one of his companions asked on the benefits of prayer and he said that um if you were to take a bath in a stream five times a day would any dirt be left on any of your part of your body and to this the companion replied that no there would be any dirt left on my body if i was to take a, a bath in the stream uh, five times a day so his holiness explained that this is the effect that uh, prayer has on our spiritual state that it truly cleanses our heart uh, so this is the the blessing itself of of prayer in fact one companion he asked the holy prophet peace be upon him he was blind and he had difficulty going to the mosque and he said to the holy prophet peace be upon him if he was to be exempt from uh, attending the congregational prayer and even to him the holy prophet peace be upon him replied that well if you can hear the prayer then you should make every effort to attend uh, the congregational prayer so and it just goes to show uh how much uh, you know the holy prophet peace be upon him stressed that uh, one should um pray in congregation um and and the benefits of that so so it, uh, it also uh, it ought to be remembered that an individual can only observe and fully experience prayer in the true sense with the help of supplication and to implore of anyone or anything besides allah is uh, diametrically opposed to a believer's uh, in indignation and because only allah is worthy of being implored in supplication no for certain that until a person ab- abases themselves completely and does not beseech allah the exalted alone and does not implore him alone they cannot be deemed as a true believer and a true believer in the actual sense the very essence of islam is that all of one's faculties whether inner or external must always lay prostrate at the threshold of god almighty just as a large engine fuel uh, fuels many fuels many other parts in the same way until a person's every action and and movement is not made to follow the overall power and overall um and control of the engine how can they believe in the divine divinity of allah the almighty until this is so uh, can such an individual call themselves one who is ever inclined to god it is the true 
sense when reciting the words, I have turned my face towards him who has created the heavens and the earth. So uh, I wanted to also read out how members of the community have improved their spirituality. This is from Al-Hakam. And uh, it, it says, it is regarding some of the individual members, how they have improved in their spirituality within the community. So this is from Tahir Makungo from Kenya. He explained how the mosque is out of bounds. So we just pray at home with our families and loved ones. Then the routine, then the routine is family now follows, starts with Tajit prayers, Fajr prayers, the Quran, after which we make a circle and everyone reads one ruku of the Holy Quran. Uh, also, it says that an Arab, an Arab and the lady from Canada told us how our children are attending online community classes and then they memorize three chapters of the Holy Quran. Also, uh, from Belgium, Rayan Ikani explained how isolation was actually a golden opportunity for him and this is a golden opportunity to read all the books of the promised Messiah peace be upon him and also it is interesting to read the history of Islam and we should uh, we should take this time to read these hidden gems so we can benefit during this difficult period uh, so that's just um, some of the um, some of the feedback which uh, from families during the isolation period uh, and this is from alhakam.org so in actual fact prayer itself is uh, is very important to us and as I explained from the narration of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him that uh, it has a profound effect on our on our spiritual state as well and just like we need our physical food um three times a day or sometimes you know not even three times a day in between we're sometimes having snacks or we're eating something in between so we're eating all the time during the day similarly this is our spiritual state as well that we need to constantly remember Allah the Almighty and for that within Islam we have the five daily prayers um, so may Allah the Almighty enable us and that we act upon these teachings and with that I'll, I'll hand the mic over to you to conclude the Conclude the show. Thank, thank you very much. I mean, we are we are seeing uh, the numbers that are attending our mosques are growing uh, since the lockdown uh, was lifted. Uh, still, precautions are being uh, being maintained, so we still have to wear masks at all mosques. Uh, but distances between uh, between worship is 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 slowly narrowing, isn't it? Now uh, it used to be two meters, and now it's uh, it became one meter, and now it's became becoming even shorter than that. So I'm sure that uh, we will have the same kind of numbers that we were experiencing before, if not more, uh, as uh, we uh, move away from uh, the worst elements of the of the lockdown and the pandemic that prevented uh, worshippers from uh, coming to the mosque. Anyway, uh, we come to the close of this particular broadcast uh, and it leaves us uh, to thank those people who were involved in uh, delivering it. Uh, the producer, Malia Abdullah, uh, is worthy of her gratitude. So is her researchers, Kudsia Ward, uh, Hannah Saud, and uh, Salia Bakhtiar, and Neha. 
uh, all uh, worthy of our uh, thanks. Asadullah, who's been beavering away in the uh, in the control room to make sure that everything ran smoothly. Thank you to him uh, to uh, make sure that that was uh, achieved. Uh, and uh, we also thank our listeners for joining in uh, doing this uh, two-hour uh, program. Um, we must not forget uh, those experts that joined us either. Uh, Ruth Olmstone uh, was uh, with us uh, to uh, deliver her understanding on uh, the subject of younger ge- generation turning to prayer and mindfulness in particular. Uh, she was from Nation UK. Uh, Richard Burnett of uh, MICSP Mindfulness in Schools. Uh, Rebecca Crane from Bangor University. And then uh, in the uh, second segment, we had the services of uh, 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 Dr. Joshua Edelman from the University of Manchester who lent us uh, his understanding uh, of uh, this uh, topic about changing the views around religion that uh, COVID brought about. So here's the 9 o'clock news. Salam